The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. In 2013, Edward Snowden appeared in the news daily for his revelations that United States government officials had been spying upon citizens and aliens on a scale previously unimagined in response to perceived threats to America's security. Americans continued to debate whether those threats justified the loss of privacy. 150 years earlier, in the midst of civil war, faced with allegations of even more grievous threats to national security, Government officials took similar actions on a different technological scale. Was it a real threat or an electioneer political fantasy? We'll find out tonight from Stephen E. Town, author of Surveillance and Spies in the Civil War, Exposing Confederate Conspiracies in America's Heartland, on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex at 205 Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, not on the campus of East Carolina University, and thus not speaking for the university 
or using their equipment or their work time or anything at all, but still hopefully representing the good name of the Pirates. Not speaking for our new Chancellor, uh, just appointed today. Uh, to look up his name again. Comes to us from Valdosta State in Georgia. Uh, it's an exciting time to be a pirate in the way that it's an interesting time in the uh, in the sense of the, the Chinese curse about interesting times as we wonder what will happen with our leadership. Steve Ballard steps down after uh, I think it's 12 years as chancellor. He's been chancellor a long time and had, he had the misfortune to preside over the crash of 2008 and the as he has put it in speeches, the end of the golden era of American higher education, the era when states funded higher education with the sense that the entire society would benefit so students and their families should not have to bear the full cost. And that seems to have been a national decision we've made to stop doing that. Uh, certainly it's happening in North Carolina. And Chancellor Ballard had to deal with the fallout and try to keep things keep the pirate ship afloat uh, on a much tighter budget and he did most people, most of us I think would agree on campus a remarkably good job of that and now we have a new person coming in judgment to be reserved, we'll see how he does but uh, hopefully it will go well. He does have uh, a, a doctoral degree from Oxford in I think theology or divinity studies, some, some religious studies area which is a good thing to to have a university leader who has a an advanced degree who, who actually has something of the product that the the institution produces. It's one of those odd things where people occasionally flirt with hiring someone who has no experience in the area it tends not to work out well. Uh, you, you can hire a business leader uh, as, as St. Mary's College did up in Maryland, and he ends up. Uh, applying very strict bottom line business values and, and very quickly alienating the campus and getting fired. Or uh, historically, I think, uh, bring in a business leader to an institution whose job is not to make money but to defend the country. And you get Robert McNamara from Ford Motor Company running the Defense Department, and the outcome is Vietnam. So, in general, my recommendation uh, as a historian is get someone who knows the business. And since ours here is education, we're happy to have someone who has an advanced degree. We'll see how he does. We also have uh, a new quarterback, equally important in many people's eyes here. The uh, last year's quarterback-to-be for the Pirate football team hurt his knee the week before the season began, sat out the whole year, rehabbed himself, came back, was one of the top two contenders for the starting job, and then this week he decided to transfer, so suddenly we're back to different quarterback, but we're away ways off from football season, so we'll, we'll wait. In the background, you can hear Heidi, the standard poodle, uh, objecting to the discussion of college football and Civil War talk radio. She's saying, get to the history, so I will. We have uh, some very good shows coming up in the future, but I should say no new live show next week. Uh, alert to Folks at Voice America, I will not be here next week. It's final exam week on campus, beautiful April evening. Students are already studying for exams, which begin uh, tomorrow. 
But we'll be back with a show the following week, May 11th. Uh, Lisa Tendrich-Frank will talk about her book, The Civilian War, Confederate Women and Union Soldiers During Sherman's March. After that, we've got the appropriately named Thomas F. Army, Jr., whose new book is Engineering Victory, How Technology Won the Civil War. I'm very interested to see how that argument comes out. No live show on May 25th. That's time for the Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, this hallowed ground tour of sites in Virginia and Pennsylvania and Maryland. Still not too late to sign up for it if you're interested, but I'll be on the road that week. Back on June 1st, the guest we're trying to line up for that evening is Candace Hooper. Her book, Lincoln's General's Wives, Four Women Who Influenced the Civil War for Better, and for worse. Curious very much about that one too. These are books all piling up on my table and uh, we'll be reading them before the shows happen. On June 8th, Bridget Ford joins us to talk about bonds of union, religion, race, and politics in a Civil War borderland. Then on Mark 15th, it's Mark Bielski, whose book is Sons of the White Eagle in this American Civil War. Polish officers on both sides of the war between the states. And finally, wrapping up the 2016 spring season on June 22nd, Christopher Lyle McElwain Sr. has a new book on Civil War Alabama with some very uh, effusive blurbs on the back. It looks to be very good. Anxious to read that one too. So lots of good stuff coming up on Civil War Talk Radio. Hope you can join us for all of them. Buy all the books by going to impedimentsofwar.org, the website that tells you what's coming up on the show. And if you click through the Amazon links there to get your books, it sends a penny or two to the website. You can also use the Civil War TR at AOL.com PayPal button and send cash this way. Always welcome. as I was saying a bit earlier, there are different kinds of institutions. Uh, universities are not businesses primarily, just as businesses are not universities or churches are not armies and so on. There are many kinds of things. Civil War Talk Radio is an educational institution to the extent it's anything at all. It's not here to make money, but I'm always happy to take your money. Uh, not a donate, not a tax-deductible donation, to be sure, but one that will be used to buy some of the books you heard about tonight. Well, let's talk about the history of surveillance and spies in the Civil War. It's the title of the book by our guest tonight. His name is Stephen Town. He works at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indiana, and uh, joins us to tell us what was going on behind the scenes in the Civil War. Uh, Stephen, are you there? Yes, I am. Uh, welcome to the show. Oh, it's, it's a pleasure to be with you. Well, uh, you're, uh, you work at IUPUI, is that correct? That's correct. I'm an archivist in IUPUI Special Collections and, and Archives. So I, I almost ended up there. It was one of the places I interviewed the, the season that I ended up coming to East Carolina University. It would have been nice to to stay in Indiana and, and work in Indianapolis, but things didn't work out that way. How, how long have you been uh, in your position? I've been on the staff here since 2001. 
And how do you get a job like that? What kind of training uh, goes into that? Well, most of my colleagues come from the world of, of, of well, they, they get MLSs, a Master's in Library mm-hmm. Science, and they, and they trained as, as uh, librarians primarily uh, with archives specialization. I came a different route. I was a grad student at IU Bloomington in history, actually in English history, and I left that mm-hmm. uh, during a in the midst of PhD, I had passed my exams and all that, and I quit, and I got a job at the Indiana State Archives and, and worked there for a number of years and then applied for and got the job here at IUPUI. So I come from the route, um, the historian route, which is a route that many take who, who end up working in archives. Now, the Indiana State Archives, my recollection when I was writing about the Army of the Ohio, and this is 20 years ago, uh, is that the, the, in those days, the State Archives and the State Library and the his, State Historical Society were all in roughly the same place. But yes, they used to share a building, but that's no longer the case. The, um, the Historical Society built its own building and Crossed the street from the state library and and moved out. Then the um, then the state library was going to undergo renovations, and so the state archives was to move out temporarily to allow for the renovations. And then um, so it, the state archives moved to a, a warehouse on the east side of Indianapolis in a na- in a rather nasty warehouse district. Mm. And then in the state. Um, administrators, in their infinite wisdom, decided not to move them back in. So they they've stayed out there since then. In the last uh, session of the Indiana General Assembly, the the General Assembly voted uh, twenty five million dollars to build a new state archives building, which will be downtown. Actually, it will be on the IUPUI campus. Hmm. So architects are right now, as we speak, I hope working on architectural drawings for a new state archives building that will be downtown on the IUPUI campus. So it's a, it's a good thing, very good thing, because the state archives uh, were in a very bad um, warehouse situation where they had very poor uh, conditions and um, where the records were deteriorating because of the bad environmental conditions. Now they'll be able to, when, when the new building is built, they'll be housed in um, conditions that will preserve the records. And I'm talking about important Civil War records. The records of Governor Oliver P. Morton was one of the towering figures in the Civil War. Well, the, uh, I, I'm glad to hear that. I, I recall the some of the stories about the Indiana State Archives being in, not in an ideal situation. The Historical Society does have a nice building. I have been there. They now have the, uh, the artifacts that had belonged to uh, the Lincoln Museum from Fort Wayne, where I used to work uh, before that institution disappeared in, in 2008. So the Historical Society is a worthy custodian. But the, the State Archives, uh, you mentioned in the introduction of your book that you you just started poking around there and discovered uh, discovered things really were in disarray. And uh, I yes. guess the, the, the silver lining of that is you found stuff nobody else had ever seen before. 
That's right. That's right. Yeah, I, I, I started there, and um, after a while, I thought I, w- I want to do research. I, I should do research in records that are readily available to me. So I was thinking about different topics, and um, but then um, I, I got started in reading, going through, and dealing with the uh, the really masses massive quantities of materials of the governor Oliver P. Morton administration. And it's, it's fabulous stuff. And, you know, from reading your, my book, you can see, I, I base a lot of my, um, work on those records. They're really a goldmine of information, much of which was never, um, uh, available to anyone before because the stuff was not organized. So, uh, I'm hoping that this will, this book will expose a lot of people to these records at the state archives and also records at the national archives that really have not been um, looked at very much at all. Well, one of the uh, things that comes out in, in historical study is that if records are, are somewhere kept anywhere, sooner or later somebody gets to them. Uh, uh, I happen to be watching the story on ESPN last night about the Hillsborough Stadium uh, mm-hmm. soccer disaster back in 1989. The fans were uh, crushed uh, in, in in the stands from too many being being allowed in. And just this week, a, the British government has finally acknowledged that the fans weren't responsible; that they were they were just showing up, and it was actually a. Uh, malfeasance by the stadium and, and the police leadership, but that only came about because somebody pursued the records and found his boxes of unorganized records and went through everything and found the original statements made by the police uh, that showed what really happened and then showed how those statements had been doctored before they were released. So the the lesson I took away from that, as I was reading your book, I'm watching it on TV and I'm seeing with both out of right eye and left eye the same thing. If it's on paper, sooner or later, someone's going to dig this up, and the new story is going to come out. And yeah. certainly, that, that's what you've done here. With that setup, uh, we'll come back in just a moment and talk about what it is you found about the existence of conspiracies and threats to national security in the Midwest during the Civil War era. These are detailed, of course, in the book, Spies and Surveillance, Surveillance and Spies, I should say. Uh, the author, Steve Town, is our guest tonight. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. 
that professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Stephen Tao. He's the author of Surveillance and Spies in the Civil War, Exposing Confederate Conspiracies in America's Heartland. So... Stephen, the the big question, uh, were there uh, conspiracies, were there threats to security? What have historians said traditionally about this? Yeah, this is a, this is a lot, there's been a long debate by historians um, for um, many years over this question, and it went back and forth. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the years after the war, um, people remembered uh, individuals who lived through the experience of the Civil War remembered about uh, remembered the conflicts in their communities. Historians started writing about the Civil War uh, in the late 19th century and started relying, uh, building their arguments on those on those uh, remembrances. Mm-hmm. Um, so they so they talked about. Uh, this kind of disloyalty and treason and conspiracy in the North. Um, this continued into the early 20th century. A couple of historians wrote uh, during World War II about what was called then Fifth, fifth Column um, efforts, uh, efforts mm-hmm. of people who were subverting the government, um, conspirators. Then, then a historian, a young historian, uh, out of uh, University of Wisconsin Madison, did his PhD there, named Frank Clement, wrote a uh, dissertation saying uh, a dissertation about the uh, so-called Copperheads, the the Peace Democrats of the Midwest, and um, said that all these things that had been uh, expressed before um, ha- had been partisan lies that. Um, that the Democrats, the Peace Democrats of the Midwest, had been have been um, uh, vilified for no real reason. That they were good Americans in their own right. They believed, however, in a different constitutional arrangement: uh, state sovereignty, state state rights, and all that. And that they were the victims of partisan vilification by radical Republicans, 
and and he it went on. Clement went on to write a series of books, many articles through the 50s, 60s, 70s, into the 80s, and actually into early 90s before he died, um, about uh, the Copperheads and how they had been the victims of uh, smears, uh, partisan smears, by these radical Republicans and army officers who were in cahoots with these radical Republicans. Um, the chief vi- uh, villains in his many writings, many articles and books were the Midwestern Republican governors, chiefly Oliver P. Morton of Indiana and, and Richard Yates of Illinois, also the, the governors of Ohio, uh, William Dennison, David Todd, and uh, John Bro. The, uh, then there are the officers who worked with uh, those governors, and he particularly uh, points the finger of blame at, uh, at, at General Henry Carrington, who worked in Indiana, and then there was a, a Colonel Sweet in Chicago, and and others, and and also Colonel Sanderson, who worked, uh, who was the right hand man of William Rosecrans, who was commander of the Department of Missouri in St. Louis. These, uh, according to Clement, were. Um, were political hackmen, and they and they created a mythology in his terms of uh, democratic conspiracy and treason in the Midwest for political purposes to allow to the these Republicans to get elected and reelected. And he says they succeeded, and that then historians relied on on this partisan. Um, um, screed um, and built their historical arguments on that. And, and so uh, Clement viewed his work as a revision um, of this um, to portray the, the, these, these peace Democrats as good Americans in their own way. So that held the field for a while, but there, there's been work, uh, I think Jennifer Weber's book, Copperheads, comes to mind. Yeah. Uh, others who, who've looked at this more recently and said, no, there really was something to this. But you've—that's th- the focus of your work uh, right here. That, that in Indiana, Illinois, Ohio, Michigan, Kentucky, there the the records you found suggest there really was something going on. Oh yes, very definitely. I think the um, you're you're correct. Jennifer Weber at the University of Kansas these days. Um, her book from about a, about ten years ago uh, on Copperheads is a is a political account account of the politics of in the North during the Civil War. Another David Long, who wrote a book, uh, mm-hmm. whom you know you should know. Oh yes, um, yeah, and uh, he he wrote a very useful book, and I'm forgetting the title, but the the, um, the Jewel of Liberty. That's right, the Jewel of Liberty, and he looked yeah. specifically at the 1864. Um, uh, elections and 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 the role of conspiracy in those and he and he and he very plainly said that um, it was it was it was the case and um, and that the climate thesis is um, flawed but he he put that in footnote in, in mm-hmm. deep in a footnote and I don't think anyone saw it 
Um, but he made the point, and it was a very important point. So I, what I did was I, I was digging through records at the, at the state archives in Indiana. I was finding all this stuff that was um, contradicting what uh, Clement uh, was saying. And then so I, I started doing work at the National Archives and made many trips to the National Archives over many years and uh, kept on finding more and more stuff. And I concluded that what I've got is a book-length treatment of military intelligence in the Midwest during the Civil War. So that's what I ended up writing. Um, it's, uh, it's, been a, it's been a long time in, in, in the writing in the research and the writing. And, uh, but I think it'll be a useful book, I think, to correct a lot of the mistakes that, have, uh, that historians have made primarily based on, on Clement's uh, mistaken um, take on, on Midwestern affairs and then, and then just repeating what he, he said. A lot of historians have, have, have taken Clement's work at face value. And if you look at it more closely, it's, 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 it's got problems. Well, that, that is the, the story of history is every generation people look at new material or look at old material in a new way and find new things to say about it. And if we didn't keep doing that, we would be out of business. The whole Civil that's War right. would have been written up 100 years ago. Uh, fortunately, that's not the case. What I found particularly interesting in reading your account was how uh, like everything military in the Civil War, the, the military intelligence effort was completely improvised. There are no massive yeah. standing armies in 1861, and there's no uh, infrastructure for, for detecting conspiracies and, and threats to national security. So whose job was it to find these spies when the war began? Well, um, there was the uh, very um, small, very... Um, weak uh, civil law enforcement um, authorities, um, both federal and state. Uh, and in the, at, the, at the federal level, you had U.S. Marshals and U.S. Attorneys, and their job w was to prosecute and uh, uh, prosecute and pr uh, according to federal law. Um, the they were appointed, of course, the law came about, uh, the, I'm sorry, the, the war came about shortly after Lincoln was in, came to office, and um, Lincoln was, was just filling those positions, and then all of a sudden these guys are confronted with reports in their communities of, of nefarious acts, primarily um, shipping materials to the South, um, or... Um, meetings in support of the con Confederate uh, secession cause and so on. These, and these guys wanted to um, investigate it, but they didn't have the tools to, to be able to do that. They weren't allowed under law. They weren't allowed to hire detectives. They weren't allowed to put detectives on salary. And um, it was a significant handicap for them. So, and, uh, Sorry? I say it makes sense. When the war breaks out, you've got you know ten to twenty years of political partisanship between Democrats and uh, first Whigs and Republicans arguing about states' rights, arguing about slavery, arguing about secession. And once the war begins, that doesn't just turn off like a, a, a no. That's right. But so, they were they. they but it was it was just it went much uh, 
further beyond just partisanship. What they were with the what they were encountering were reports, and they were finding evidence of groups organizing, um, organizing resistance, organizing efforts to discourage uh, recruiting, volunteering into the U.S. Uh, federal uh, army, um, and then shipping materials, war materials useful to the Confederate cause to the South. Um, and also, then they were they were uncovering reports of people going south to volunteer to serve in the Confederate cause. So they 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 saw the they they were hearing these things. It wasn't just rhetoric that they were hearing, and 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 people weren't complaining about speech. They were complaining about people and and reporting incidents of actual aid and comfort to the to the Confederate. Rebels, so that's what these guys were were uh, trying to uh, investigate, and they couldn't do it very well because they couldn't hire detectives easily. Um, they they couldn't. They weren't given the tools, and uh, more or less. I mean, that, that's a theme that runs through your your work. That from the beginning of the war, when you have the the very few federal marshals or district attorneys uh, at one level, the, the state governments, and the military officers themselves, none of them have the resources to fight this. Every request right. to Washington for money to hire detectives or buy equipment uh, yeah. is always turned down. Yeah. Well, the, the, the Army had resources, and mm-hmm. they had resources in, 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 in manpower, and actually had, they, had, they had a lot more money than, than the civil authorities did. And... Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what happened, and the uh, there was a void. There was an information void. Uh, people needed information. The civil law enforcement authorities didn't have the means to be able to in- make the investigations uh, and do them effectively, and so the army into that void. They started uh, investigating reports of secret meetings and uh, and so on. In southern Illinois, then um, an officer in in Indiana, in late 1862, started um, hearing things of, among soldiers that the soldiers that soldiers in army camps around Indianapolis were um, in cahoots with um, people who were uh, um, offering them the ability to desert and and and, and get away. Uh, Scott Free, so he investigated then, and and then officers in Ohio uh, dealing with the, the 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 huge problem of desertion from the from the from the federal armies, especially the Army of the Cumberland, um, uh, started investigating the the people who were helping deserters desert and hiding them and arming them against arrest. So, yeah, it, it all happens very haphazardly. One of the things I thought was quite interesting was how the, the Army not only has the, the line of officers investigating events in their neighborhoods or that affect their units, but that after the beginning of conscription, when you have the provost marshal established, you have a whole separate bureaucracy, a parallel arm of the 
armed forces. The, the provost marshal, his job is to administer the draft and incidentally to round up spies. That's and right. So, so you've got two different military bureaucracies often in the same place working on the same task. You wonder how many times they each have a, a soldier pretending to be a copperhead talking to each other, uh, one reporting to that, the provost, one reporting to the local general. That's right. And that, that, that did happen a couple times. And in fact, um, and people got in army uh, investigations got in each other's way. And mm-hmm. there's a, there's a in, interesting telegram that uh, Rosecrans, General Rosecrans in St. Louis sends to somebody in, in, in Cincinnati because Rosecrans had one of his agents, one of his detectives, nosing around Cincinnati, and he got into trouble. Um, and, uh, and so he wires this person in Cincinnati and says, you have done uh, a, a disservice to, to the cause. You know, don't get in my way again. <laughs> and, hmm. But yeah, that, so that did happen on, 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 a, on a limited extent, to a limited extent. They, but the, the detectives fanned out quite, um, quite widely. In, in, and you, you mentioned the Provost Marshal General Bureau. Mm-hmm. They, they are present in every single county in, 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 in the Midwest, so of cor- across the, the nation. And uh, the special agents who are hired to chase down the draft dodgers and, uh, and deserters are everywhere. They're ubiqu- ubiquitous. Um, the, the, the deputy... The district provost marshals were allowed to hire four special agents um, for each district, and in some cases were allowed to hire more if they had a specific, had a particular problem. Um, there's one instance in Western Illinois in the summer, late summer, early fall of 1863. The um, the, the provost marshal for the, that district was allowed to hire 15 more special agents to roam over throughout his district, multi-county district, to chase down deserters. And so he had, at one point, 19 um, special agents, detectives, uh, roaming that, that, that region. So they're ubiquitous. They're everywhere, and they were arresting deserters left and right. And then they were arresting the people who helped the deserters. And, um, and so it was a. And the records in the Provost Marshal General's Bureau at the National Archives, RG One Ten, are replete with these records of, of these special agents reporting to their district people and then the district officers reporting to the state provost marshal saying, you know, th- we've got all this act- stuff going on. We have all these efforts um, and, we have organ- and we're facing organized efforts to, um, to aid deserters and draft dodgers. So this this is widespread. Ironically, last week's show we talked about the two northern journalists who were captured uh, and eventually escaped from Salisbury in western North Carolina and were aided by Red Strings or uh, Heroes of America, other loyal American groups uh, within the Confederacy. 
who are the mirror image of these, these copperhead secessionist groups within the North. We'll take another short break. We'll come back and talk about exactly what these threats looked like, what some of these groups were up to. Uh, we're talking tonight with Stephen Town. He's the author of Surveillance and Spies in the Civil War, Exposing Confederate Conspiracies in America's Heartland. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Stephen Town, author of Surveillance and Spies in the Civil War, Exposing Confederate Conspiracies in America's Heartland. We've been talking about the efforts of the federal government through its civil wing as well as through uh, the military arm to uh, expose and uh, arrest Confederate spies and uh, sympathizers and and people aiding the Confederacy uh, with with contraband and other uh, aiding deserters, uh, discouraging enlistment and so on. What we haven't talked about really, Stephen, is is what exactly, is how effective these these threats were. Mm-hmm. Just, just one to set the table. Uh, at one point, you're describing some of the encounters between uh, officers who go to arrest a deserter, then uh, a local group of uh, Democrats, anti-war Democrats, will try to protect the deserters, and gunfire will break out, and you get a gun battle between soldiers and uh, anti-war uh, uh, copperheads. And in one of these, a telegram comes into Indianapolis, and you know it's a big battle. We got to do something, and the response is not to worry. And it turns out uh, it's described as a false alarm. It's, it's it's nothing. Only two people were killed. 
Well, today, if two people were killed at a rally for one of the presidential candidates, we wouldn't say, oh, that's no big deal. It'd mm-hmm. be a huge deal. But what this suggests is there were so many of these gun battles, so many uh, encounters between northern soldiers and northern Confederate sympathizers that lead to actual shooting uh, throughout, throughout the Midwest that, that two people getting killed is not even newsworthy. So that suggests there really was a lot of active Confederate sympathy going on. Yeah, yeah, you're right. There, were, there were numerous instances of of violence uh, throughout the Midwest. Uh, lots of shootings, knifings, you name it, um, where people are resisting the authority of the federal government. And I. In the, in the book, I try to document a lot of those. Um, in Illinois, there's really a significant amount of violent resistance to the draft enrollment and, and the draft mm-hmm. in the summer of 1863. And I, I document, uh, using records in the National Archives, uh, some of these instances. Of, and, and similarly, there are uh, some in, in Indiana and Ohio um, yeah, people are getting shot, and people are are being killed um, uh, when when large organized crowds, armed bands, are uh, appear and and sur- in some cases surround a, a draft enrollment officer um, or or a group of soldiers sent out to um, arrest deserters, and they tell them. You're not going to be able. To, you're not going to do that. You know. You're not. You know, give us your records, and they they take the records from the draft enrollment officer, tear them up, or they will uh, release. They will seize the deserters who had been ca- captured by soldiers, and 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 release them, free them from from the troops. Uh, these these incidents happen uh, throughout the region, throughout the Midwest, and it's and it's, and. And it was a huge problem. The um, so these groups, these groups were able to rally large numbers of people, large numbers of armed men in communities throughout the Midwest together, and they would they would um, arm themselves and 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 stand up to federal authorities, federal the, the, civil the, authorities. And, and military authorities, and uh, it was a, it was a s- significant problem, so much so that uh, that the that the authorities devised different ways to to uh, counteract that. in In eighteen sixty three, for instance, Governor Morton and his allies um, um, develop a very conciliatory effort. Uh, you know, Against to to try to combat um, this resistance, they they realized that they did not have um, enough uh, military strength uh, in Indiana to be able to counteract uh, uh, and the risk of an uprising. Um, if they if they got if they were afraid, Morton and his allies were afraid that if they cracked down too much on on these armed groups. That they would rise up en masse and um, and and seize power, 
And so they were very conciliatory. They made sure that, that they did not overreact and that they, that they would send out negotiators to talk to these groups and talk to people in communities and say, we, you know, we will work with you. We will, we will try to calm things down. And they were successful. And so in, in Indiana... In 1863, in the summer, a hot summer of 1863, things didn't boil over. So, the, I'm sorry. Well, the risk is always there, though, of, of what, you, what you describe as a general uprising. Yeah. Uh, every time there's there's action around the periphery, uh, in a forest, or Morgan making a cavalry raid uh, up to the Ohio, uh, or uh, you talk a lot about uh, Clement Vallandigham, the Ohio politician who is exiled and ends up in Windsor, Canada, just across the Detroit River from Detroit. Uh, if and th- There are people right on the borders of the North or within the North who are just waiting for an opportunity to, uh, uh, to rise up. And you describe how in 1864, in that summer, there's a, a real problem getting the authorities in Washington to believe that this this threat is serious, just as historians uh, who followed Frank Clement didn't think it was serious. Uh, uh, Lincoln and his uh, advisors don't seem to think it's that serious in 1864. Yeah, yeah that was very true. That, no, that in the summer of 1864, the uh, army officers who were running spies uh, in the Midwest were able to infiltrate these secret groups um, by 1864, summer of 1864, they were called the Sons of Liberty in most of the Midwest. In, in uh, Missouri, they were still called the Order of American Knights, uh, even though it was the same organization. The, um, so, they, so the officers and the governors who collaborated with them knew what the plans were of these secret groups, and they were planning uprisings, and specifically in August uh, there were planned uprisings um, in Indiana. And, um, and so they're contacting uh, the, uh, the administration in Washington saying, we've got a problem. We've got a significant problem. We have an imminent problem. Um, and um, so through much of the summer, uh, the, the Lincoln administration is, is saying, bah humbug. Um, this isn't... Um, we don't we don't want to spend our time on this we don't want to uh take our focus off um what's going on in virginia and georgia with uh, grant and sherman's armies and so so lincoln particularly is uh, brushes aside these these risks well what happens i think is is it in in finally in august 1864 Lincoln is presented with in, uh, incontrovertible evidence um, from um, Joseph Holt, who is a very important figure in the War Department. Um, he is a judge advocate general in the War Department, and he's a very prominent Kentucky Unionist. He, he's, he is sent out in July uh, by Stanton, Se- Secretary of War Stanton, to go out into the Midwest to check with uh, the commanders in Kentucky and Illinois and St. Louis and in Indiana and, and, and get, get the, discover the lay of the land, what's going on in the Midwest 
is, is what the governors and these generals saying true. And he, and he goes out to the Midwest and to Kentucky and comes back to Washington and says, yes, it's very true. You've got an imminent danger, and it, 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 it endangers the, um, the survival of the United States. So Lincoln gets that information. And, um, and, and then, and, and so, in August of 1864, you finally get some um, action from the War Department um, to support the generals and the governors in the Midwest. The other thing that the War Department did in 1864, in, in August 1864, was to send out orders uh, to all to all the um, military commanders in, throughout the North and through the out, through the occupied uh, southern areas, uh, mostly in the borderland states, saying you will. Um, uh, keep a surveillance over certain people, and if they do anything um, uh, contrary to what we want, you will arrest them. So, so it's in August of 1864 that Lincoln finally acts. And the background for that is, of course, and it was in August of 1864 that Lincoln thought he was going to lose the election. So, I'm suggesting that Lincoln, because he thought he was going to lose the election, goes to the extreme of ordering surveillance over the, the entirety of the North and the occupied areas. And then also he orders the use of military commissions to try the conspirators who are arrested. And, and that that ended up uh, with the uh, that resulted in the uh, Indianapolis treason trials, which started in September of 1864, and went through the October, November, through the elections, and um, and were very significant in um, where well, they were really they were they were show trials mm-hmm. that helped uh, Republicans win election um, and re-election. So they helped Lincoln win re-election to the presidency, and they helped governors like Oliver P. Morton win election. So in, in one sense, Clement is not wrong. These do have a political impact, but the argument that they are not anything but political uh, doesn't stand right. up against the evidence right. that you've yeah. uncovered. Clement is, Clement is right, but he's, he's very wrong in, uh, in arguing that this was all... Um, fabricated. In, in fact, this was all very real. These conspiracies are very real. Uh, the officers and the politicians all believed that they were real and, and, were, uh, and, and posed significant dangers to the, to the state. So, well, yeah. There are a few things harder to write about than uh, the history of intelligence and counterintelligence, spies, uh, anything uh, subterranean because it's the very nature of that work and not to keep records of it or to falsify records of it. And so we don't always have the evidence that we want, but certainly there's an impressive amount of evidence here. 
in, in this book, Surveillance and Spies in the Civil War, Exposing Confederate Conspiracies in America's Heartland, uh, it presents a very convincing case that there really was something very important going on and that the actions taken were not just uh, political actions or uh, something done to win elections, but were necessary to stop a very real threat to uh, to civil order in the, the North during the war. So, listeners, you will be able to judge for yourselves. Take a look at the book. It's by our guest tonight, Stephen Town. Stephen, thank you so much for being here. It's been my pleasure. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm -hmm.